welcome back to Wool Shift Dust, a Silo TV podcast. It's finally time for our first official breakdown episode. We will be discussing the first two episodes of the TV show Silo, out now on Apple TV+. We'll be discussing them in detail, so consider this your official spoiler warning. We will be spoiling both of these episodes, but nothing else. We're not watching ahead, and while one of us, me, has read the books, there will be no spoilers about the twists and turns therein until we see those events play out on screen. So, my co-host here, Luke, are you happy as a Silo fan right now? I am, I am. I'm, ve- I'm very happy. I really enjoyed both episodes. I've, I've got a lot of thoughts on both episodes. There were some bits I was a little bit uncertain about, shall I say. We'll get to those as we go along. Okay, okay. I'm very curious to hear. Yeah, as a fan of the books, overall, I'm very happy as well. They took what was on the page and they added more depth to it in a lot of cases with new scenes that propel the same plots but show things from a different angle often. So it really makes the books and the show feel like complementary experiences. Yeah, they really blend it so well that even though I just reread the book, I went back and reread these sections again just to make sure I was remembering which was book and which was show. Yeah, Yeah, but they also threw in some twists that made my jaw drop. Uh, I'll tread carefully talking about those when we get to episode two, but let's just say they're keeping the book readers on their toes as well. Reviews overall seem to be very positive. We've got a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes last time I checked. And I saw someone on Twitter called the show like Snowpiercer and Westworld had a baby that only inherited the good parts of each. Do you agree, Luke? Ooh, ooh. Um, see, that's an interesting comparison because I'm a huge Westworld fan and I'm fairly indifferent to Snowpiercer, so (laughs) I can certainly see where they're coming from. So what do you see as the Westworld comparisons? The first one that sort of struck me was actually the the title sequence. Oh oh yeah, for sure. The title sequence is very Westworld. We'll talk about that. Um, yeah. We have got, I think it's clearer than Westworld, but we have got juggling time frames. We have flash forward and flash back. True. Um, I think Rebecca Ferguson is really well cast as Juliet, but I can see, I can see a little bit of Dolores Abernathy in her character. I can see okay. a little bit, I can see a little bit of Maeve um, from Westworld in her character. I would personally well. say more Maeve, yeah, but okay. Yeah. I am hearing a lot of Snowpiercer comparisons, uh, much more than Westworld. I guess in some way, it's kind of like if you turn the Snowpiercer train on its side, though, like the internal political dynamics and rules of the world are different. Uh, And I'd like to point out that the first part of Wool, the first book in the Silo series, was released in 2011. So that's two years before Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer film, though the French graphic novel that that film is based on, Le Transpersonage, is from uh, 1982. Okay. Um, But yeah, but I can also think of like half a dozen other sci-fi stories off the top of my head that have the same sort of physically stratified social system. It's a good trope. I enjoy reading and watching those kind of worlds every time. And uh, Silo is definitely going to distinguish itself as the story continues. Um, Anyway, there seems to be a lot of buzz in general about the show in the corners of the Internet that I've been frequenting. One thing that might have helped was this marketing campaign that went viral, SiloResidences.com. Did you see that one, Luke? I did see it, but I didn't really, I didn't click on it. So I assume they're offering like a silo-like experience. Um, yeah, basically, it looks like a website designed to lure investors and potential residents to the silo. Oh, so, they've, done, they've done a Delos.com uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's there's artwork that makes a silo interior look like a fancy shopping mall, and they make promises like, quote unquote, hyper local goods and exclusive places that are 100% residents only. Um, <laughs> There used to be a video, too, with the iconic line in it, with so much on your doorstep, you'll never go anywhere else. So lock yourself in today. (laughs) Boom, boom. Um, 
Yeah, but I guess it was confusing to many people. Uh, there were a lot of people sharing and commenting on this uh, online, thinking that it was real. And then, of course, the book fans were messing with them, commenting things like free cleaning included. Uh, <laughs> So now the website, they've replaced that video with a trailer for the show, or I don't know, maybe that was the marketing plan all along. But yeah, okay, so we have got a lot to get through. So we're going to get into our breakdown of the two episodes in just a moment. Uh, but we're going to take a quick pause for advertising because podcasting isn't free. Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. And we're back. So let's start with episode one. It's called Freedom Day. It was directed by Morton Tildum, which yeah, we know he's a Norwegian director who is directing the first three episodes of, of this show. And it was written by Graham Yost, the you know show creator and exec producer himself. So since we have a two-part episode this week, uh, and it's a premiere, uh, and I had a feeling that this episode was going to end in a Holston-related cliffhanger. Uh, so I asked you, Luke, to send me a voice memo with your episode one thought before you watched episode two. So we're going to play some clips from that voice memo as we discuss this episode, uh, starting with this one. Okay, so I've just watched the first episode of Silo. David Yellamo broke my heart many times over during that episode. It sets up the world of the Silo incredibly well, incredibly quickly. I'm more convinced by my theory that aliens are somehow involved. There seems to be the implication that there's some kind of selective breeding program going on in the silo, which is interesting to say the least. So first of all, yes, absolutely. Emmy for Oyelowo, now please. <laughs> oh, you, you broke my heart, Holton. You, you broke my heart. <laughs> oh, man. It, just the way, like the single tear down his cheek in various moments. Oh, he was just so encapsulated this Holston character so well. Well, we're going to talk about that more. But then you also got into some interesting theorizing. So I'm wondering, is this still where your head is at now? Yeah, more or less. So, okay, starting with the first episode, we start with Holston, the sheriff of the silo, played by David Oyelowo. He's getting ready for his day, but careful attention is paid to the way he places a vase of flowers, uh, which I guess are fake, probably, uh, in front of the mirror, and then seems to be placing something or getting something out of a vent. Uh, we'll get more clues later about what's going on there, but this seems to be something we should be taking note of for future episodes. And next up, we get the sequence of Holston walking through the up top, uh, the same sequence we talked about in our last episode and he is reciting what we now know is the pact so luke you were totally right about this being a mantra of sorts uh, later we see mayor johns reading these words from the pact uh, so that explains why we hear all these different characters saying it yeah it's a sort of formal sentencing that a judge reads out at the end of a, at the end of a trial yeah, it I feels did... to me like last rites yeah yeah it, do it does it does I thought the little bit where he was passing through the cafeteria and he just offhandedly says to a character, are you awake yet? And she says about halfway there. There is something about the way a yellow boat delivers that line that suggests that this is a guy who has who has made a decision and come to peace with it, basically. And is so like he feels of, awake. He's yeah. Mm. And it's not so much like the content of the line. It's the way a yellow boat delivers it. It's it's subtle, but I read that as it was a weight off his mind. Yeah. Just sort of, you know, going through this routine that he's had for the past two years. And I imagine him saying that same line to that same person every morning as he walks to the office. And there's something about the way he delivers it that is final. That is like, I am doing this thing for the last time. 
and appreciating that fact. It's I, yeah. Okay. I thought it was. I thought it was just. It's not yeah. the line. It's the way. It's the way he delivers it. I'm wondering if you watch that scene differently each time. And yeah, I I did pick up on that more the second time through than the first. But I just thought it was a really. I mean, Yellow's performance is just staggering in these these two episodes, and it's just it's the little things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And the relationship between him and I can't remember the character's name, but Will Patton's character. Which is, de- which yeah. is de- yeah, which is delivered in very few lines, but you know exactly who they are and exactly what their relationship to each other is. Yeah. It was just really well done. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. So for most people, this sequence of Holston walking through the silo is the first look they'll get at the silo layout. Uh, We've already talked about that at length in previous episodes, but we do have to take a quick moment here to acknowledge a bit of a controversy in the book fandom right now. Uh, Something we're going to call Stairgate. But with the power of Hugh Howie's words vested in me, hopefully we can put this controversy to rest. (laughs) So basically in the books, the stairs are described as metal with their center treads worn down by time and so narrow that it can be tough to squeeze past the porters, etc. Obviously in the show, the stairs are much larger than that and they're made of cement. Uh, So Howie did a silo AMA on Reddit the other day. And of course, this came up. User Pocket Snacks asked, who made the decision to change the stairs from metal to in the books to concrete in the show? I know it's uh, one of those things that doesn't really matter uh, in the grand scheme of things, but I love how the sounds of feet on the stairs gave you information about the mood of the silo. Uh, And how he responded, so many good reasons for this change. For one, Metal stairs would be an acoustic nightmare for production. But the biggest reason was to simply make the staircase much larger while still being possible to build. Uh, In the books, the stairwell is so narrow that barely two people can pass each other. That would make it almost impossible to shoot anything meaningful on them. And they would basically disappear on the screen. Uh, So he finishes with metal is better for the books. Concrete is better for the TV show. Great question. Luke, do you have an opinion? Yeah, no. The instant you said that the stairs are made out of metal, I was thinking, well, it's, it's a good job they didn't do that in the show for precisely the reasons that the Hugh Howie outlined it'd be an absolute acoustic nightmare you would you would either have the constant sound of like feet on metal in the background or you would have people going well why can you only hear people on the stairs when it's important to the plot that you can hear people on the stairs and also yeah I think making them wider it gives directors and writers another location to shoot from and have characters interact with and also like obviously I haven't read the books but it just makes more sense that the stairs are wider given given the amount of traffic going in both directions you, you said in an earlier episode we'd pick up on this I'd be really interested um, to know at some point in the series why they didn't build an elevator because clearly they have the technology to do that I can uh, promise you that specific question will eventually okay. be answered. Yeah. Yeah. But I, of course, also had to look up the science of metal versus concrete myself um, from an in-universe perspective. And I'm no materials expert, uh, though I'd love to hear from one. But overall, it sounds like concrete is durable, easily resistant to fire damage, environmental damage and pests. So it's also a good choice for a long lasting silo. And it's cheap, of course. And I'm pro quieter material as well. (laughs) Yeah, I also I think it speaks well of the show and the production that they've gone into that much detail of thinking it through of, you know, what would how not just 
what we would do with the characters, but how would we explain that if they were made out of metal, how would we explain the lack of constant background noise? Right. And the easiest way to explain it is we just don't make them metal. Yeah, and, and really everything's kind of feels scaled up on the show. Like, for instance, yeah, there are more holding cells we talked about. Um, it sounds like the law enforcement is maybe more decentralized. We'll talk more about judicial later. Um, there are more screens uh, in different places, it seems. Uh, there's the food has more variety. It's, yeah, it, it seems like they are adding more livable life to the silo. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that makes sense because there's a difference between what you can imagine in your own head, you know, as as a book reader and what you, you want to see on the screen. So you're going to need to make the silo brighter, you know, without making it a nice environment. You've got to, right. you've got to explain to the audience how a society can function in this environment and how people right. don't just go completely stir crazy. Right, like it's uh, bad enough, right? <laughs> yeah, it's bad enough. But so do I take from that that in the book, the silo is just as deep but considerably narrower and they've literally, they've literally sort of widened it out for the show to give them a bit more space. Yeah, I mean, but they're also doing this thing like we talked about where they're making several stories within each uh, level. That's what they've said in interviews anyway, um, that we've yet to completely see that. So the silo yeah. is just, it's just bigger. It's just basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. And the other big change is that in the books, different groups with different professions wear different colored jumpsuits. So everyone can easily see someone's job by glancing at them. But in the show, everyone except like the sheriff's department just wears street clothes. Uh, do you have a preference, Luke? Do you think one makes more sense than the other? I actually think that would be really cool if they had done that in the show where, every, yeah. where everybody's in, in uniform. Because again, with a, with a society this strictly stratified, that makes absolute perfect sense. And also, if you think about it, you want to limit the number of different items of clothing you're producing yeah. yeah, I don't mind the change, though. Um, I think this goes along with the whole making it slightly more livable. Um, so, And I can see how some things that sound cool in the books might look goofy to some people on the screen. So, yeah, I'm cool with it. I kind of like how the silo feels less barren in the show. You know, more you're more aware of how many people live there and are populating it. Yeah. So, anyway, in the episode, Holston walks through everything uh, past the window that's getting rather cloudy. And he's greeting everyone coolly as a cucumber like you brought up Luke and he writes a note double the flowers in front of the mirror which we'll see come back later but not explained really oh I didn't I watched that a number of times but I didn't pick up on what was written on the note yeah oh Oh, galaxy brain. <laughs> so, yeah, so he tucks it into a file um, and he takes his badge off and leaves it with a note for a separate note for Deputy Marnes. Uh, and Deputy Marnes is played by Will Patton. And yeah, then Holston, cool as a cucumber again, casually asks Marnes to meet him in holding three. And the way Marnes responds to this makes me think maybe this is the only holding cell that links to the outside. He's like, oh, holding three. No, I just oh. I just thought it was because Mons realized there was nobody in there. Yeah, okay. Like why yeah. are you why are you asking me to meet you in an empty cell? <laughs> could be, could be. But yeah, in any case, Holston locks himself in and uh, he does the unthinkable. He asks to go outside. He wants to see his wife. And boom, that's the cold open. So, Luke, we're going to talk about what you thought once you got to the end of this episode later. But based on what we talked about over our previous discussions, how surprised were you when you first saw Holston asked to go outside here? I wasn't overly surprised. Because, like I said, there's, there's something in the Yellow O's performance in that whole sequence that suggests that this is, a, this is a guy who has wrestled with a decision for a long time and now he's made it and he's calm. 
I think if you have no prior information, I suppose it's not a shock because you're just like, okay, you want to go outside, so what? But I just wondered, based on our conversations about what going outside means, because I never, I carefully never said that Holston would be the second cleaning in the book, in the show. Yeah. Yeah. No, like I said, I just think the yellow woe, particularly like when he's messing about with the flowers and he's he's writing all the, he's writing these notes, struck me as the performance of a person who had decided who had okay. decided to end their life or who had decided at least to make some kind of world shattering decision. There's sort of that preternatural calmness about everything he does. Mm, okay, so then we got the opening sequence, and that's been getting a lot of praise for its dreaming silo scenery. Uh, you were a fan too, as you said, Luke. Yeah, um, very, very Westworld. I liked it. Also, also very Game of Thrones in that it yeah. sort of uses animation to set up the world because you sort of, as the title sequence goes along, you go down the various levels of the silo. It ends, it starts, starts at the top and ends at mechanical. Yeah, um, which I thought was the uh, first time watching you get through i thought that i love awesome. a good yeah i love yeah. a good map yeah yeah i love a good map yeah you can't go wrong with a good map so the credits were designed apparently by imaginary forces they've made the titles for a lot of it seems like especially apple tv shows like hello tomorrow and foundation and the music that goes with them has also been getting deserved praise uh, i really thought it enhanced each scene throughout the two episodes i even before i saw people were talking about it i noticed it a lot uh, you luke do did you respond to the music yeah, I thought the music sort of, it did a lot to tell the story, to sort of to create atmosphere without being, because when I watched the trailers and they do the um, Inception da-da at the end, I thought, oh, that, that sounds uh, a little bit bombastic for the, the story Silo's trying to tell. But I thought, no, I thought the music worked really well. And I, we'll talk about this later, but I thought the, the section where they were doing Freedom Day and Holston sort, of right. sort of walking through the silo and you get these, you know, you sort of get these sort of musical motifs as he's walking by a sort of diegetic music people are playing music in the scene right that worked really well yeah. yeah so yeah the credit goes to the composer for this series who is okay i'm going to i had my icelandic friend coach me on how to say this so i'm going to try not to embarrass myself his name is atle urfersson and the soundtrack is available on Spotify or Deezer if you're a weirdo like me. So if anyone else who's a fan, yeah, I, I recommend it's good work music. There are a lot of other things we want to get into on the production design side of things. Uh, there's a lot to look at here. But since this is a double premiere and we have a lot to talk through already, we're going to save that deep dive for a future episode. So we'll pick it back up after the opening credits. We get the three years before the cold open. Uh, we jump back and... And Holston and his wife, Allison, played by Rashida Jones, they're nervously awaiting news of whether they'll get their third chance to try for a child. Basically, due to population control measures, the right to have children is determined by lottery. And if you win, you get your birth control device removed for one year. And if you don't get pregnant in that time, the device goes back in and it's somebody else's turn. So it looks like good news uh, when they find out that they have won the lottery again for the third time. But of course, this is where the trouble begins. And we see that the 365 day countdown we see it ticking down on their home computer for the rest of the episode by the way aside about the computer i don't know how rare it is to have a computer in your home and since they do i, I found it interesting that allison used a courier to call out sick later in the episode so i'm, I'm hoping they're going to explore the communication system a bit more soon i'm she you know, could just she could just have sent an email 
Yeah. So, yeah, we see Allison and Holston headed to the cafeteria with Allison uh, feeling the baby making pressure from all the other residents already. When guess who pops up at their table? It's the woman we see sitting in the hospital bed in the trailer. We've been speculating about her in the last few episodes, but it turns out that she is Gloria, played by Sophie Thompson. She's a character who pops up later in the book Wool. But it's, they're changing and especially expanding her role in the series, it seems, which I like. There are a lot of characters in the book that you just get to meet for a specific part of the story. But I like the idea of fleshing them all out and like showing more how they're all connected. Luke, are you satisfied that mystery solved? Yes, Leo, put, Leo pointing gif was me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really glad they did solve that mystery. I have a lot of questions about this whole sequence. So, for a start, why is it made public who has won this lottery? It seems like maybe that's just the nature of the society in the silo that privacy is not a thing, but it seems really odd. Yeah. It seems really odd to publicly announce. I mean, I think otherwise people, there would be too much speculation, you know, everyone would want to know who got it on, on any given time. Yeah, and I think I there's probably also something about wanting the social pressure. Now, yeah, we'll discuss obviously whether or not they actually want Allison to have the kid, but I can imagine in general, they want certain people to feel the pressure to reproduce. Yeah, that's a really good shorthand way of just telling the audience how different the silo is from the world we're in, because yeah, there is no consideration of personal privacy or no. sort of personal space. I also thought it was weird that like there is literal clock, there is literally a, count- yeah. literally a countdown and it's like, yeah. How much pressure do you want to put on people? The other thing I was thinking of... I mean, the talk- countdown is obviously a show edition done for the audience. But yeah, yeah, I guess. <laughs> but like, the other thing I was thinking, we were talking about an interview Common gave last week in our, in our previous show. And he was saying, you know, that the racism and sexism doesn't exist in the silo, but classism does. And actually, from that sequence, I would take issue with that. Because it's Alison that's getting the birth control removed. It's not Holston. Having mm. a having a vasectomy. Good point. Reversed. So actually, I would say that's actually deeply misogynistic. In that, yeah, it's, if it's always that way, then yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a double standard. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is what happens in the event that the birth control fails? Do they forcibly abort the fetus? Or is somebody just knocked out of the lottery for that year? Do they just make space? I don't think that's addressed in the books. And I I don't know if they'll get to it in the show, but I think that's a good world building detail to ponder. Yeah, I would imagine that they just maybe have one less than following year or something like that. Yeah. Or... Yeah, or if they found out, I mean, you have to wonder, we'll talk about later about Alice and cutting it out of herself, but you have to wonder if anyone's ever done that before. Yeah. All right. Anyway, as the episode goes on, we learn that Gloria started developing theories about why she herself wasn't able to get pregnant with her husband. Theories that she's going to put into Allison's head. But for now, Allison's very dismissive of her offers to give some shady sounding fertility counseling. But I completely understand, you know, desperation to get pregnant. I can understand how that can make you consider whatever alternative options are available. Now, Luke, And the next part, we have to admit to being a little silly. Uh, You and I were both struggling so hard to see Ian Glenn's face in the doctor from the trailers, but it turns out it's a different actor and a different doctor altogether. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
yeah, it's, we, it's, we got we got that completely wrong. Well, I mean, we just we know Ian Glenn's in it. We know he's playing a doctor, and we're just like it has to be him. But no, this is Doctor Leonard, played by Paul Bigley. And of course, the silo must have more than one doctor. Um, in the books, doctors other than Doctor Nichols are mentioned in passing, but this is a new character. And yeah, given the implications of what happens in this episode, where we later find out he was apparently only pretending to remove Allison's birth control, we can see why they would want to make it a new character and not Sully any other characters we might meet. Yeah. Can I ask you, do you think the doctor is in on the whole birth control thing? How much do you think he knows? Ooh, good question. I think probably he has to be because it would just be too complicated for the doctor not to be because because that, that kind of assumes that there are two birth control devices. I mean, we're not quite sure how they work um so what if he discovered the other one it just makes more sense that he would be in on it i've got to say it, it's it was fortunate that holston was standing off to the side of the doctor rather than standing behind him because like that that screen is not particularly effective if somebody else is just standing directly behind the dogs yeah dogs, i mean you would, you would you would see what was going on but i guess he must have actually cut into her because i mean she would have an incision and they would yeah. have to heal or she would notice if she didn't yeah and like she says, she can feel pressure. So yeah, yeah, they they, they removed something. I cause or they he could have just like cut into her, poked around, and you know glued it back up. Yeah, well, but you do see him drop the little birth control. Yeah, but that could have been the, one that yeah. he yeah had ready. This is a slight twist from the books. I, I think it gives Allison more motive for what happens later. Yeah, and we also get throughout the episode we get a baby making montage uh, yeah. and we have to talk about the office romp especially Austin Becker you stud muffin <laughs> it's a lot of people's favorites but some people <laughs> complain about it do you think it's funny or cringe I, th- I, I think it's funny I like yeah. the I, I, like I, li- I like the scene where they cut away and Marnes and the secretary are just sort of trying not to giggle as yeah well. I, was, I thought that was quite cute I mean we've already talked about the quality of the acting I thought Rashida Jones was brilliant we got a few people write in about her later, yeah. Because she establishes Allison, her motives, her relationship to Holston, your sort of hopes and dreams and who she is as a person. And you absolutely believe that she is a complete and well-rounded individual. And she does that in like 20 minutes. Yeah. And that, that is a testament to her ability as an actor and the quality of the writing. Cause yeah. And the no, connection with her and Oyelowo is yeah. just really natural. Yeah, because at no point do you question that they're a happily married couple. Right. You, know, you, you just buy that from minute one when they're having the argument about, oh, does she want milk in her coffee? You know, it's just, it's it's really well done. It's yeah. Really- okay, so we see Allison at work. She works in the IT department and she's gossiping with a Karen. And I mean, literally a woman named Karen, <laughs> played by Georgiana Goodman. Now, in defense of Karens everywhere, every single one that I know in the real world is like an absolute delight. But it's also funny that we've turned the name into a meme and given that we have done that it's funny that they chose to give that character yeah this I, name. I, I, don't, I don't think that's that's coincidental i think that's yeah. i think that's a huge wink to the audience <laughs> yeah i mean she's not a character in the books uh, basically she's been created so that the other characters like allison have someone to say things out loud to howie and yost have talked in various interviews about the challenge of adapting a book like wool where it's an internal monologue for a lot of the time and the screen you need people to say things out loud so this is one of the tricks to uh, make that adaptation yeah uh, Luke do you think we'll see any more of Karen or do you think she was a one and done character 
I think she was a one and done character. I suspect the doctor is going to be a one and done character as well. Just yeah, uh, yeah. But then yeah, but then in this scene, we also of course get our first glimpse of Bernard, played by Tim Robbins. Uh, Luke, what did you think of his entrance to the story? Yeah, this is my this is one of my slight complaints. I, I feel like, I feel like I've had it in for Bernard and Tim Robbins ever since <laughs> the first trailer dropped. But yeah. like. But like the way he comes in and the the way he holds himself and just the entire content and tenor of the discussion, you might as well have had the Imperial March playing <laughs> behind him as he walks in. It's just like, I am instantly unlikable. I am instantly sinister. Right. I am instantly the antagonist. There's a great bit of Scrubs where JD comes across one of the more senior doctors and he has a he has a daydream. You know, some, sometimes you can just tell instantly about people and the doctors go, I'm a tool, I'm a tool, I'm a tool, I'm an incredibly annoying tool. <laughs> it's like, that's my, that's that's my just... take on Bernard. I think the unlikable part is deliberate, but there's mm-hmm. just like... Tim Robbins might as well be twirling his mustache while stroking a white cat. It's just putting off bad guy vibes all over the place. Yeah, okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Yeah, I'm curious to see how they're going to flesh out his character over the rest of the season. But yeah, we just get a quick glimpse of him so far. Uh, He's Allison's boss in IT, and he's unhappy with Allison because she published an article on their silo-wide newsletter about how to recover deleted files. And Bernard says that that was verboten, and he just went ahead and deleted that article for her. Okay? I'm sure you meant well. Right, right. (laughs) Just, yeah, very dripping with with smarm, yeah. But yeah, Sheriff Hubby also isn't so happy about Allison playing fast and loose with the rules, which makes sense given his job. Allison references in this conversation that having one of the forbidden relics we've discussed in previous episodes, uh, that that will get those goons from judicial to send you down to the mines. Now, we meet the goons from judicial in episode two, when Sims, played by Common, rolls up on some unrestful citizens in the market with a double backup. But Luke, you asked me how judicial and the sheriff's department are related, and my honor honest answer is i don't completely know yeah um, it's just it's just my my politics nerd brain always takes me to who has power why did they get it how yeah. can you change them and what are the sort of relationship between these institutions and it seems i mean on the face of it just by using the name judicial you would think that, the, that it's sort of the sheriff's department's job to to arrest criminals to catch criminals and investigate them and judicial's job to try them you know in the same way that in our world you know law enforcement and the judicial as separate bodies so one is in charge of investigation and arrest and then a judicial process takes place after that arrest but it seems like judicial they've got the classic secret policeman's garb of you know long black leather trench coats right um, wandering around and i sort of got the impression like literally from the way they were dressed and the way they were interacting basically they are a political police force the judicial's job is to kind of enforce the pact and right. make sure that you know the citizenry is watched and their sort of views and politics are controlled whereas the sheriff's job is just to sort of deal with ordinary run-of-the-mill crime i sort of see judicial as well as like the old second director of the kgb or the stasi right or the bureau of public security in contemporary china 
Yeah, yeah, Judicial's getting a lot more attention in the show than in the books, uh, where Sims worked in the IT department. So it's hard for me to say at this point. I hope they're going to you know, define that that relationship. So back in the conversation Holston's having with Allison, he uses, quote unquote, that sheriff voice to explain to his wife and to the audience that the pact, the mantra we keep hearing, it's designed to keep people from losing it and taking the whole silo down with them. That's why the second someone says they want to go outside, they have to. They don't want to play around and let another rebellion kick up. Uh, does this make sense to you, Luke? Given what the people in the silo think they know about the outside world, it makes it makes absolute sense. That line about you're using your sheriff voice, oh mate. Yeah. I thought that, that was a really sweet line. Because again, you see this later on in the episode. Holston is really, really committed to the role he has as sheriff. And yeah. really committed to doing that role to the absolute best of his ability, regardless of the cost to him personally. So you sort of do see the, the two sides of his character, you know, Alison's husband, father-to-be, and this public official holding a really important job, holding a really important trust that he will do whatever it takes to execute that office. Right. Okay, so we're going to jump to about half a year later when we meet Mayor Johns for the first time, uh, played by Geraldine Jones. It's Freedom Day, and she's worried about fire hazards, uh, but apparently not enough to set off a bunch of lanterns inside the silo. There are a lot, <laughs> of, a lot of people wondering online who's on top catching these things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. I did sort of wonder. You doesn't doesn't seem particularly safe. I, and I, I do love the kind of the deputy mans and the mayor sort of have this very much yes dear energy. You know, yeah, very yeah. old. Yeah, they've been very, working very together married, a long time. Yeah. yeah, a very long married couple energy. Yeah. That made me laugh. I, oh, good. The way that was done, that made me laugh. Yeah, their their chemistry in the books is great, too. So, yeah, so none of this Freedom Day stuff is in the the books, but I like it. Uh, I always think a festival day is a good way to show how a community functions in a TV show, uh, shows what people believe and the the way they handle this one visually. It reminds me of something similar they did in the first season of Wheel of Time uh, adaptation, which anyone who knows me well knows I mean is a compliment. But I think, yeah... Overall, there was an unexpectedly joyful energy throughout this episode, which yeah, helps lighten the tone of a pretty heavy story. Yeah. What do you think, Luke? You get the same in The Matrix when they go and visit Zion for the first time. It's like a big mm. party. And I, th- I think that's important for establishing, even though living underground in a silo, even though living underground in a city would suck in, you know, any number of profound ways, that actually this this is a society that functions. It is a life worth living and it has its ups and downs. It's not just unalloyed misery and survival. Because one of the things I was a little bit worried about with the concept of the silo when you first sort of pitched what it was to me, is how do you avoid a situation where the audience would just go, well, everybody would just go stir crazy, you know? Yeah, we talked before about the role of Panama Circus, you know, that you need to entertain the masses to keep them in line, you know, to keep them from acting out. Yeah, so in this bit in the cafeteria, Mayor John says, nobody wants the cleaning, but people need to see what it's like out there. Uh, Now, in case this is anyone's first episode of this podcast and it wasn't clear in the show, a cleaning is when someone is sent outside to clean the sensors that show the people living underground what it looks like outside. So she's saying the people need to see that it's a toxic wasteland out there. So sending someone outside, it sentences them to death or does it? Because that's the central question of this episode. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I thought it was really 
interesting in the way that a cleaning was a social event. Like non-essential personnel are actually given time off to be able to see a cleaning. My initial sort of expectation is that people would be dragooned into seeing this as a way of as a way of keeping people in line. But actually, it's not like that at all. It's much more like a it's much more like a medieval hanging where it was a you know right. where it was a social event. It's often combined with markets or fairs. It was considered a form of entertainment, and we see later on that people are betting how long people are sent outside would survive right they're, be- they're betting about pe- whether people would actually go through with the cleaning because one of the really nice touches i thought was they acknowledge up front when they're reading sentence that we can't compel you to clean we've given yeah. we've given you materials to clean and we would like you to clean but if yeah. you just want to run over that hill there's, yeah. n- there's absolutely nothing we can do about it and we're not going to try so yeah i thought that, i thought that was really interesting the other question that lodged in my mind, and I wondered whether the book addresses this, is what happens if there isn't there isn't a crime committed or nobody says they want to go outside serious enough to to warrant a cleaning and the the, the lens fogs up completely? Do they just pick somebody to send outside? Do they just wait for somebody um, to? I mean, humans being humans, it it feels like it's never gotten to that. So actually, maybe they make it a little more clear in the books. But by the time Allison goes out, it's got, getting to a point where, you know, you see Mary Johns is worrying about it. So maybe they should have fogged up the screen a little bit more even. Uh, but that's it's been quite a while. I forget exactly what the you know, what, how long it's been. But yeah, it's it's been quite a while. But it generally, you know, every few years, somebody does something so bad or, you you know, it's relatively rare for somebody to say they want to go outside, let alone yeah. two in a row. But because it's not as though if you, if you commit any crime, you're sent outside to clean. Because they're, they're it's, talk- it's a death sentence. Yeah. It's yeah. Serious, so they're, yeah. They're, they're talking about you know if you have certain relics, judicial will send you to the mine. So I assume there's right. like a whole range. You know, there's a whole range of different crimes and punishments. Sure. So. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Indeed. But at this point, we're getting into deeper into Gloria's paranoia. So she's turning on the water in case judicial's listening. She's saying they burned books and hard drives and pretended it was the rebels. She's telling Allison that people like them, non-docile people, don't get to have kids. And the other thing that gets Allison to start thinking differently is that she gets to know a guy named George, played by Ferdinand Kingsley. And at the time, he had a shop in the market making tech repairs, and he found something interesting on a hard drive. So he's lured Allison down there to look at it with a repair request. Uh, turns out he's been trying real hard to get her specifically because he saw and actually printed out her verboten article about recovering deleted files and he's got a doozy of deleted files now luke you had something to say about this in your voice memo so we're going to listen to that real quick now the item that was recovered the drive that was recovered from before the rebellion seems to be a blueprint of the silo and it seems to indicate that the silo is was considerably bigger at some point than it is now Luke, anything to add? Anything else you noticed about this exchange? Um, no, not really. I think my voice pretty much covered it, to be honest. Yeah, I'll point out one other important thing we see from this drive in a later scene is a file labeled uh, Jane Carmody Cleaning. And uh, we see Allison and George watch it. And we see a reflection in Allison's glasses of green scenery with trees and a V-shaped flock of birds flying by. And yeah, meanwhile, while they're looking through this hard drive, Mayor Johns is giving a speech to the entire silo about how six minutes, six seconds past six o'clock on this day, 140 years ago, that is the moment we regained our 
our freedom. And uh, she talks about the terror of the rebellion and how their attempt to open the door to the outside world would have killed them all. She talks about the destruction of hard drives and files, which is what Gloria was earlier questioning whether that was really done by the rebels or not. Luke, you messaged me over the weekend to say that you were starting to question whether or not the rebellion even happened. Yeah, I just wonder whether the rebellion is even a thing. Because the history of the rebellion is really spotty. The story that the mayor is telling is really vague. And it's a truism to say the history is written by the victors, but not even the winning side in this rebellion seems to have bothered to set down, like, any convincing explanation of what this rebellion was, who the rebels were, what they were trying to do, or anything. It's just there's something that happened 140 years ago, and I get that maybe recording history on paper might not be the most important thing to people living in a silo, but you would think there'd be more of an oral history yeah. that would pass down the events of the rebellion in some detail. The explanation that they give for that is that they say the rebels have destroyed all these books and hard yeah. drives, and that's why we, we don't know these. But yeah, we see John's, Mayor John's later, she's mm. trying to figure that out herself. Yeah, because she literally speculates what if it was a cleaning that, mm-hmm. that started the rebellion. It just seems... At best counterintuitive to me, the nobody on the winning side of this rebellion would preserve the story of what happened, even if they couldn't preserve the history of what had gone before the rebellion. Okay, I'm going to set your mind at ease to say that these are questions that will be eventually be answered. Okay. But on the subject of the timeline, you had another part of the voice memo, so we'll listen to that real quick. We have a bit more of an idea of the timeline. So this rebellion took place 140 years ago. The silo seems to have existed for quite a long time before that. So that's my question for you, is how old do you think the silo is approximately? I have no idea at this point. And what's even more interesting is the people living in the silo have no idea at this point. No. Um, because we sort of heard in various bits of media that it might be sort of three generations. We've heard that it might be three centuries. At this point, either of those are plausible or it could be much older. I mean, uh, or do you think it's three generations since the rebellion? Yeah, I don't know. Rebecca Ferguson really sort of made misspoke with that interview. But yeah, I, I don't know. I think that's one of the mysteries going forward is just how old is the silo and who mm. built it? Yeah, of course. One of the central yeah. mysteries. So in this episode, more time passes until it's doomsday. The baby making clock has reached zero. But Allison, she doesn't show up to meet Holston with Dr. Smugface. Uh, she's, too busy. <laughs> she's too busy being at home, cutting herself open. It turns out she just wanted to check real quick if she still had the birth control device inside her and it looks like she did luke this scene it's definitely not in the books but i kind of loved it what did you think yeah i mean it's it makes sense from a character standpoint that that's what allison would do she sort of you know she both has reason to suspect that the silo is not what she and everybody else thinks it is and also i think the story and the way rashida jones plays it communicates that allison and holston really really wanted children right um and so when the mayor and Holston are talking in a minute and the mayor goes well she might not have been in her right mind I think even though even though she may have found out something even though she may know something now that she doesn't I still think there is an element of you know she isn't in her right mind this is not an entirely rational thing she's doing it's being driven by you know deep emotion as well as whatever she's found out those two things don't have to contradict each other yeah I mean yeah I think it adds another dimension to her the meltdown in the cafeteria that follows um 
Um, so we've seen all the evidence she's seen as viewers. So we're inclined to be on her side. But of course, we can also see how she must seem to everybody who's watching her. So we can feel both sides of that discomfort. And yeah, I think that's good writing. And then, of course, she says the forbidden thing. And then Rashida Jones and David Oyelowo absolutely eviscerate our hearts. Uh, Luke, what did you think of this whole sequence? Oh, just, <laughs> oh, yeah. Poor Holston, poor Allison, just just bless their wholesome little hearts. Yeah. Um, and as I said, you know, to do that at the end of like three seasons is one thing. To right. do that and have that effect in less than a single episode is really testament to the quality of the writing and the quality and the quality of the acting. Because David Yellowwood does a really good job of making Holston both angry and towards Allison, sympathetic towards Allison. Right. You know, concerned about Allison. Yeah. Concerned about doing his duty as sheriff and you've got all the all those all layers. These, all these emotions happening at once. I also love the way that the way that Allison is written is that she cares every inch as much about not hurting Holston as she does about finding out whether this revelation that right. she's come to is true or not. It's a very human moment that, yeah. that she cares as much about Holston as this huge thing that might move the plot forward. I thought that was really well done. This is not any one thing that's driven her to this moment. It's all of it. Right. It's, it's not even this attempt to have a baby has failed. It's that her last attempt to have a baby has failed because she says it's going to be our last time because she's 38. Right. So I don't know whether there's an official age cutoff. Sounds in, like it. In, in the lottery, but it sounds like it. Yeah. So it's not just this failure. It's everything cumulatively that has led up to this point. And yeah, it just it got to me. It got to me too. I cried here and I cried in the next episode, which we'll talk about. Allison, though, she's convinced by what she's seen with George that what they see on the screens in the cafeteria is that that's fake and that the green footage she found on the hard drive is real. So she makes her argument to her husband. She says people clean because they hope it will help people see the truth, the green world out there. Um, now, in the books, the visions of the green world are the same. But I had the idea that the people were cleaning in the books because they felt sorry for the people they left behind. So that could be a change or it could just be my headcanon. Does one or the other make more sense to you, Luke? No, no, like I say, I think it's probably a combination of things. To be honest, I'm surprised that everybody does clean. If I was let out of the silo and saw that green and lush world, I'd, I don't know that my first instinct would be to clean the lens. Maybe I'm selfish, but I'd be away over that hill and beyond that tree. I don't <laughs> want to know what was out there. Because, yeah, it's worth saying at this point, when you look out and see the greenery, it's the same image as people see in the silo, just without the greenery. And Right. There's a tree and there's a slight the hill. hill. Yeah. yeah, so it's just in one version of it, it's this blasted, devastated landscape. And in the other version, it's like this Garden of Eden, lovely, tranquil, green space. But it right. is the same. It is the same space. Yeah. So what the people in the silo are seeing is not completely fake. It is based on what's really out there to some extent. Right. Yeah. And Alison, she tells Holston that she'll only clean if it's green out there, but then she does clean. And then we see her collapse as she tries to get over the short hill on the horizon. So I also like that 
we saw George watching this cleaning. Uh, that connection between the two characters doesn't exist in the book, but I think it's a really good addition because it gets us more invested in George. So we understand Juliet's loss better in the next episode. And it's interesting. He acts as a catalyst for both Allison and Juliet and thus by proxy Halston. And well, yeah, we'll see what sort of roll on effect that has. And speaking of George, we cut to two years later and Marnes comes into Holston's office to report that George, the man Holston once arrested for corrupting his wife, is dead. Uh, he went over the rails around level 120. Someone later estimates he fell about 100 feet. So that's like 30 meters in non-US speak. And it's been ruled a suicide. But Marnes says that there's an engineer down there who says it's murder. And enter Juliet. In the image that launched a million pause buttons, Holston <laughs> meets her in the bowels of mechanical in front of the heat generator because she's too busy, quote unquote, pretty much keeping everyone in the silo alive to come meet him in the deputy's office, even though it took Holston and Marnes a day to walk down there. Now, Luke, you had this to say about Juliet's late entrance. Yeah, I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. I thought it actually made sense to withhold Juliet's existence to the end of the episode. I assume you still feel the same? Yeah, pretty much. So then we cut to the present when Marnes is asking Holston, who's waiting in his holding cell to go outside, what happens when Holston met Juliet because something changed in him when that happened. And Holston says he just started listening to Allison and is going to find her. He doesn't believe her body visible in the hill is real and he's going to go see. And that's how the episode ends. Now, Luke, there was one more bit to the voice memo you sent after watching the first episode where you said... I like the fact that it's, the entire series seems to be told in flashback, so we already know the end. I assume the final episode of the series will be Holston leaving the silo, and he's going to sort of narrate the story back as we go. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I'm about to watch the second episode now. This was obviously before you saw the start of episode two. So were you disappointed that the end of Holston's story had already played out? Yeah, a little bit. I'd like to spend more time with them. I'd like to spend more yeah. time with them individually. I'd like to spend more time with them as a couple. Yeah. This is how it goes in the book, Wool, because actually the entire book started as a short story that was just about this part with Holston and Allison. And yeah, that was so popular that Hugh Howey kept writing and serializing more and eventually consolidating into these books. So sort so, of the, the, the Dickens way of writing. Yeah, yeah. going okay. old school. I was looking forward to slash dreading this because it's just so iconic and, and memorable, this love story and how it ends in the start of the next episode, as we'll talk about. But yeah, the ending of this episode and the start of the next were the wellspring of many tears. And these actors definitely made it that much harder to watch just because, as you said, the layers of emotions and their adeptness at, at bringing them all into play. And whilst actually saying very little, I thought it was really good writing that they don't have the characters, you know, say out loud everything that they're feeling right it was very much a case of less is more in terms of the, the length of the, the script i thought that, that was really well done yeah absolutely okay so that brings episode one to a close we're going to take a quick commercial break and then we'll be back to break down episode two say goodbye to your credit card rewards greedy corporate mega stores led by walmart and target are pushing for a law in congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets the durbin marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it if you love your credit card rewards tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards tell them to oppose the durbin marshall credit card bill 
Your regularly scheduled breakdown will begin in three, two, one. Ready for round two, Luke? Yeah. So from the perspective of book readers, uh, while the first episode felt like a natural building out of the story in the books, this one had a lot of readers asking already. So again, there's nothing that doesn't feel like it's part of the story, but certain elements are coming into the picture a lot earlier, uh, namely the lower levels in the digger. We'll bring them up later, but there's not much I can say because I don't want to give away any spoilers. Just what's happening by the end of the episode looks a little like something from the books, but something that happens in different circumstances at a different time. So basically, um, I don't have much of a better guess as to what's going to happen at the start of episode three than you do, Luke. I'm going, I'm going to say I like this. I like the fact that the uh, the power imbalance in this, <laughs> in this podcast has suddenly gone away. It's, it's <laughs> going into the unknown together, Alicia. This is exciting. <laughs> no, I, I, I like it. I, and I think a lot of fans feel the same way. It's like, as long as it feels right, it, it's part of the story. But it's like, oh, wait, well, what are you doing? So anyway, episode two, it's called Holston's Pick. And it was again directed by Morton Tildum. And this time it was written by Jessica Blair and Cassie Papas. And I, I looked up, they have done a lot of things that I am familiar with, like The L Word uh, was Cassie Papas and Jessica Blair worked on Becoming a God in Central Florida and Sneaky Pete. So yeah, it seems like they are uh, successful working writers. Um, not, I've not seen it, but I need no. to go and find out what Becoming a Goddess in Central Florida is, because that is a great title for a show. Yeah, yeah, no, it's also, I love I love the cast too. So we start with Holston being sent out for his cleaning, where we left off, and when he, he says the most Holston thing ever, he says, sorry for all the fuss, and <laughs> my heart shattered. I'm not, re- obviously, yeah. you know, I haven't well, read the I mean, book. but you've gotten, now you've but gotten yeah, to know just, him. Just yeah, that, just that hour that I've already spent in Holston's company. That line is, yeah, like you say, it's pure Holston. Uh, but then we switch, unlike the books, we switch to Juliet's perspective. She's watching with her crew down a mechanical. Uh, now, this this screen in mechanical is a new thing. In the books, only the top level has a screen. And it was, it was like sort of an elitist thing. But this way, you have more people confronted with, you know, the quote unquote reality. What do you think, Luke? Better with yeah. more screens on more levels? Yeah, no, I think that I think that makes sense from the point of view that you'd want as many people as possible to see what, what it was right. like outside. Presumably as well, you're relying on those screens to give you some sense of time as well because yeah. you know we see holston in episode one going through the cafeteria before it gets light and you know he says he comes back after it gets light so he's not having to see allison's body out there so i'm presuming they use the screens to delineate between day and night as well no yeah it looks like they have lighting that simulates daylight that's probably set to circadian rhythms yeah um the other thing is i was wondering do, is it set up on each level so that the cafeteria for each level is is where the screen is because it looked again it looked like they were sitting yeah in a cafeteria style i mean place. that makes it's obviously the case for the up top and as we saw it's the case for mechanical so i would imagine but yeah that's a i wonder now does every level have a screen or is it every like section they the mayor did say that there was a lottery for you know who gets to watch the cleaning in the up top cafeteria so there does still seem to be some yeah and also the allison mentioned this this little thing in the first episode that i found interesting the different levels have guest houses as well what I'm, i guess what i'm saying is people can and do move between levels it's not yeah 
Yeah. It's just, you, we hear that, you know, it took Holston and Marnes a full day to walk all the way down. Uh, John is going to, she says at the end of this episode, she's going to be, you know, doing a little political tour to go down to Mechanical and meet Juliet. So we should see that play out and, and learn more about the traveling circumstances there. Yeah, so I think it is interesting that it's not as though, or I should say it's not as though the, the able-bodied uh, members of the silo right. you know, spend their spend their lives on one one level. People can and do move about. So Juliet's watching Halston's cleaning in this perspective, unlike the book uh, where we see it more from his perspective. So this is a good example of how the show and the book complement each other. Yeah, I understand why they want to switch to her perspective because she's the character we're going to be following now. But I also think Holston's perspective gives you some insight that you don't get here. So I'm going to read some lines and summarize a bit from this part of the book to show what I mean. So if you don't want to hear this for whatever reason, just hit the 30 second skip button about twice. But in the book, it says Holston was a dozen paces up the hill, still marveling at the bright grass at his feet and the brilliant sky above when the first pang lurched in his stomach it was a writhing cramp something like intense hunger and to paraphrase the next bit holston he's fully convinced at this point that the greenery is real he thinks it's really just a cramp but he wants to wait until he gets over the hill to take off his suit so the people don't see him uh, but then the pain starts to get worse and he starts feeling nauseated and then suddenly his vision goes black but he realizes it's the visor that's gone black. It's not his eyes. So he gets a, a rock and like pries off the helmet. So we, we see that part. We see him pull off the helmet from Juliet's perspective. Once he pulls off the helmet, he sees the world as toxic and brown. It becomes hard to breathe and he tries to orient himself. And the book says his part best. Holston reached out and touched the object before him, the white suit flaking away like brittle rock. And he could no longer support his head. Collapsing to the ground, curling up in pain from the slow death overtaking him, he held what remained of his wife and thought, with this last thought, what this death of his must look like to those who could see this curling up and dying in the black crack of a lifeless brown hill, a rotting city standing silent and forlorn over him. What would they see, anyone who had chosen to watch? Luke, what do you think of this switch in perspective? That is really interesting. So maybe it's not the the um it's not the camera and the silo that, right. that I wonder whether that's just like an act of mercy that the people who created the silo put into the helmets of the people that are sent outside to clean in some way just so that that you know you know than the way that condemned people are offered a blindfold you know so that they don't mm. see the full horror of what's about to happen to them or or relating to the impulse of getting them to clean yeah actually, yes yeah, yeah that makes um, sense. Yeah. So another thing I wanted to point out is that when we do get we get a brief moment of Holston's perspective in the show, seeing the greenery through the visor and we see the same V-shaped flock of birds fly by that we saw reflected in Allison's glasses when she and George were looking at the video. Yeah. So it's, it's video. It's some kind of video yeah. VR. Yeah, that's yeah, it seems like it. So uh, that would explain also why, you know, he doesn't see his wife's body there because it's not part of the the video image and it would it would also it would also explain why the two landscapes are, are why the two yeah. landscapes are matched yeah 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 oh wow yeah, so Jules is super unhappy about Holston's cleaning and or seeing him go down at the end, at least. And she flips out a little bit. And the rest of the episode explores why she's so upset about that. 
back in the sheriff's office, Marnes, he's reading the note that Holston left behind for him while he gets a warning from a co-worker that there have been signs that the natives are getting restless and hoarding pipes and other potential weapons. Uh, we don't get to find out what's in the note Marnes is reading yet, unless you're a weirdo like me with a pause button. But we get the hint when we cut to Juliet down a mechanical working on forging stuff. But life marches on in the silo. And then we get a very important moment for book readers. Mayor Johns is knitting the second section of the book Wool, which we saw a little of in this episode and will probably be the backbone of episode three. Uh, that section's called Proper Gauge, and that's referring to selecting the right size knitting needles. In the show, we get to see Mayor Johns being more imposing in Meryl. We get to see her like make those speeches in the first episode, which it makes sense for someone who's been in her station for as long as she has. But it's kind of nice to see the softer side of her with the knitting needles too. Luke, what do you think of this show version of John's? Where do you think she falls on the Juliet to Bernard scale? Oh, well, she's, she's definitely a lot closer to Juliet than Bernard. I like the, the sort of acknowledgement of age, you know, there are about 250 babies a year born in the silo. She used to right. be able to do one in five and now she's lucky if she gets to do one in ten. Yeah. And yeah, I just thought that was a really nice sort of moment of acknowledging that, like you say, she's been in this role for some time and it's taken a toll on her. And like the way she was delivering the speech and the way she was talking to Deputy Mons. I got the sense that she's kind of ambivalent about being mayor at this point. That maybe she would rather somebody else do it, but she doesn't know who that somebody else could be. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but she just seemed tired. And I don't mean like Mm. physically tired. I mean like morally, ethically, spiritually tired. Fair. Yeah. Yeah. And now she's setting up this whole journey to the basement that's going to be a physical toll Uh, yeah so one small difference about this scene though is that in the show she's knitting in her office and in the book this scene happens in the cafeteria early in the morning before everyone else gets up that's obviously not a big deal of a change at all the only reason i bring it up is because this part of the book is actually my favorite hugh howie prose of all of them um so john's is this is going to be the last passage that i read aloud i promise but john's is knitting while she watches the first little storms of toxic dust laying the first fresh spores on the clean lenses and uh, just to give a little taste of the text since her hands knew what to do knitting she was free to glance up and watch a gust of morning wind chase pockets of dust down the slope of a hill the clouds were low and ominous today they loomed like worried parents over the smaller darting clouds of windswept soil which tumbled like laughing children twirling and spilling following the dips and valleys as they flow toward a great crease where two hills collided to become one. Here, Johns watched as the puffs of dust splashed against a pair of dead bodies, the frolicking twins of dirt evaporating into ghosts, solid, playful children returning once more to dreams and scattered mist. Um, yeah, I just love this writing. And when if you're reading on from there in the book, you can't help but cringe with her at each like fresh dust eddy that brushes against the clean sensors. And uh, in the show, like the book, then Marnes enters and we see Johns and Marnes comforting each other. And yeah, we already talked about this. They have this great repartee, as you pointed out, Luke. They've clearly been together a long time. Yeah, well, what I call yes, dear energy. Yeah. (laughs) But Martin's he hesitates to tell the mayor about the note that he got from Holston. John's even specifically asks him if Holston left any instructions. What do you think that's about, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I just thought this was Marnes. It was Marnes trying to protect his friend because 
he, I think, for understandable reasons, you know, didn't think that Holston was was in his right mind when he wrote the note. I thought it was more interesting that the mayor was using the possibility of a note to try and forestall, like, judicial selecting their own candidate for sheriff. Right. So it seems to be that the, the tradition is that an outgoing sheriff gets to nominate their successor. So, yeah, so John's sort of hoping that that would continue. I'm just really interested in how all these different departments interact with the mayor because in theory the mayor seems to be like the the chief executive of the silo you know the mm-hmm. point at which ultimate political authority rests but like with so many political systems what is written on paper or what is sort of seen as being the the known order of things is not how things actually work and there's a lot going on behind the scenes, so I hope we find out more about that. Because even the mayor seems intimidated by judicial, as if judicial doesn't really answer to her. No, definitely. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that at all. Yeah, and she's obviously bothered right now. She, she doesn't know what caused the rebellion from 140 years ago, and she's worried about the unrest brewing right now. And we have, yeah, back down in the basement, Jules is still in a bad mood, and so she goes to her safe place, which is apparently somewhere she's been hanging out since she was 13, which is the workshop of Martha Walker, played by Harriet Walter. Now, I just have to pause here for a moment and ask you, Luke, if you had any thoughts about the accents while you were watching. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't bother me. Mm -hmm. And like Rebecca Ferguson does a much better job of doing an American accent than I would. But yeah, their accent does wobble a little bit. The way I sort of think about accents on film is as long as you have one accent and you stay in it, it doesn't really bother me that you don't quite get it right because doing accents is really difficult. The point where it becomes problematic is where it becomes distracting. So like the the ultimate example of this is, I don't know whether you've ever seen this, it's it's quite um, a few years old now, but the Russell Crowe Robin Hood movie. Um, Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that film is unwatchable because Russell Russell Crowe's accent just veers all over Uh, the place. We go from like Tasmania to Texas to County Durham in the space of a single (laughs) sentence. And it's just like, where are you meant to be from? It's, It's really distracting. Yeah, I saw a few people comment on Rebecca Ferguson's accent. I would say two things. Firstly, it didn't distract me. And second, you're only allowed to complain if you think you could do a better job. Right. Um, so the thing to say about Rebecca Ferguson is I'm not I don't know her entire filmography but I know a fair bit of it and I don't think I've ever seen her play somebody as spiky as Juliet you know well, we can say Juliet's I mean she's she's quite a butch character you know the way yeah. that Rebecca Ferguson does her mannerisms her energy and the way she moves um, yeah and she's, she's you know she's one of life's introvert she's a very introverted character and i don't think i've seen rebecca ferguson play that before Mm, and she did it really well well yeah on on the front of the accents the only thing that kind of distracted me at first was that i noticed a difference because obviously harriet walter isn't american either she's you know british so i I noticed like the clash in their accents like walter they're going for like a more down home kind of accent which then i realized it's probably an intentional choice because to signal you know she's from mechanical juliet's is quite different though but we'll learn more of her backstory later yeah. so it could be a good in-universe reason but yeah in fact yeah we have a Swedish and an English actress here both brilliant but their accents sometimes caught my ear 
not that I really mind because I'm completely engrossed in the story, but just to bring it up once and leave it at that, <laughs> though I did read a review saying something similar about Ian Glenn's performance, which we'll probably see next week. <laughs> so back to the recap. We find out it's been three months since George's death and we get a flashback to before that when George showed up at a gathering in Mechanical Cafeteria to celebrate a guy named Cooper, played by Matt Gomez Hidaka. He's becoming Juliet's shadow, which basically means apprentice. And you know that's going to be a fun time for him because he gets a cake that says, you'll be sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, I thought that was a really nice touch because yeah. mechanical, we get the sense that these are the grunts of the silo. Like the guy stands up on a table, you know, we get shit done in mechanical. Right. You know, so so this is a hard job done by hard people. Right. And so I thought having them introduced, having a little party and eating cake. A really sort of nice bit of counter-programming, really. Those moments of levity, those social gatherings where you get to see people in their element together. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, but so George shows up at the party, which surprises Juliet because he's usually really secretive about the fact that they have developed a romantic relationship, apparently, since he moved down to Mechanical after the whole Allison arrest incident, I guess. Yeah. Now, I-, I was confused about this. Did he move down to Mechanical by choice or was he sent there? I mean, I I think so. In the books, we just kind of know that he was down in mechanical with Juliet, you know. So we this whole part where he's in the market and meets Allison, that's sort of a fleshing out of his role, creating a new connection. I think it's okay. nice, it's together nicely. But yeah, so my impression from watching the these two episodes a couple of times is that, you know, he got arrested and then he's just like, screw all this. I can't hold have this shop in the market. So he just kind of escapes down to mechanical. And, okay. I sort of wondered whether, obviously mechanical isn't as bad as the mines, but I just wondered whether <laughs> being sent to mechanical might be a might have been a form of punishment for him being arrested. Because also I did I did sort of wonder like how is like labor managed in the silo? Presumably there is an element of people going where they're sent, going where they're put, because I don't think in that population you would have enough people volunteering to go to some of the more unpleasant assignments to make it work. I mean, I think there ha- would have to be some element of compulsion to it. I mean, okay, so if you look at someone like George, he wasn't he wasn't doing Juliet's job in mechanical. He was still doing IT stuff yeah. down there. So, yeah. you know, and it's also like, you know, they have we meet Hank, the deputy down in mechanical, and that's a real character from the books, by the way, too. Um, and he's still he's still a deputy, but that's his jurisdiction. So not everyone down there is doing that. But also, yeah, it is true, like a lot of people will follow in the footsteps of their parents. Okay. The other thing I guess to talk about is that we're given to understand that people need to register their relationship. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because that's why George is secretive, because they're not sanctioned in their relationship, which we later learns means their relationship hasn't been officially registered. And George was afraid to do it because he had a feeling he was going to go down and he didn't want to take Juliet with him. So do you think the sanctioning system sounds familiar? <laughs> yeah, if we're to understand that there's some sort of selective breeding program going on in the silo where they, mm. they allow certain people to have children but don't allow others to have children then it makes sense following from that that you would want to keep track of who is partnering with whom maybe you're just dealing with a society where the expectation of privacy has basically been erased at this point i mean yeah i think that's there's a lot of things that we consider normal in our lives like okay i grew up in in the u.s and we said the pledge of allegiance to the flag every morning and growing up that was just like the thing that we did every day and then I tell other people in other countries and they're like, you, you, what? <laughs> you were indoctrinated on a daily basis. Like, that, it wasn't a, a big deal. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's probably been happening so long for people in the silo that it's not questioned. 
And the other thing it makes me think about is, yeah, we get a scene later where Julia doesn't have the same rights with George after he's died because their relationship isn't sanctioned. Uh, so I, I had to think about all the same sex couples in the world who have dealt with that for so long. Yeah, yeah. So George shows up at the party and Juliet, she plays little grab ass. And then he tells her something big happened and he wants to talk to her. But he gets all squirrely when some guys from what I assume to be judicial stroll in and he takes off. And he tells her he'll meet up with her later. But of course, there is no later. He dies. And Juliet never finds out what the big thing that happened was. But Hank, the deep down deputy played by Billy, I'm going to try to say this, Postlethwaite? Billy Postlethwaite? Postlethwaite. Okay, Billy Postlethwaite. Um, yeah, Pete Postlethwaite's son, I believe. Oh, could be. I don't know Pete Postlethwaite. No, I, Pete Postle. I'm just trying to think of Pete Postlethwaite, where you would know him from. Um, he is. He's Mr. Kobayashi in Usual Suspects. Oh, okay, okay. All right. He is, yeah, he's quite... Um, he might be one of those people that if I look at his face, I'll be like... Oh. Yeah, no, no. If you look at his face, you'll know who Pete Postlethwaite was. Yeah, he's, he's one of those actors that's just in everything. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Well, his maybe son, <laughs> Billy, plays Hank. And Hank, he says he's going to run Juliet's murder thoughts by the top dog. And we cut to a scene, the same scene we saw at the end of the first episode, where Holston shows up to meet Juliet at the generator. So then Juliet, she takes Holston aside and she lays out her case for murder. And we learn that George died at 3 a.m. when nobody was on the stairs. Unless you're a porter, Marnes interjects. So what do you think, Luke? Did a porter do it? Or do you think there's going to be a porter witness? Yeah, I mean, well, when you say Juliet lays out a case for murder, it's not much of a case. It's not much of a case. Beyond, I know he, he said was, he was going to meet I me. I know he was murdered. <laughs> and it's like, I was sort of there with Mark. You've dragged me. I've spent an entire day schlepping to the bottom of the silo yeah. just, just for this. This could have been an email, Juliet. There's not really much of a case. And of course, we as the audience know that there is more going on. But, like, right. Mon's skepticism is, like, wholly earned here. Yeah, but Holston, meanwhile, he clocks that there might be another level to this relationship between Juliet and George. He specifically takes note of the watch she's wearing, which we later find out was George's watch, and he'd seen it before, so he knew that she had kept it as a memento. But he still goes and makes Juliet look at George's body, which she's, like, totally cool with, of course, just like, you know, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, <laughs> oh, jo and George, bless him, is in surprisingly good shape after, you know. <laughs> after that hundred foot 30 meter fall yeah yeah <laughs> and so we bruises but that's pretty much yeah it. i mean I, I wouldn't want to see the inside but yeah so we find out that juliet lost her brother when she was 12 and her mother a year later um, i'm not going to comment anymore on this backstory until we learn more about it which i suspect we will next week but luke does this little bit of backstory affect how you see juliet at all I, I don't know that it affects how I see Juliet. She does, I think it's in the scene before this, she does sort of talk through the signs of spotting a, of spotting somebody in distress with Holston and Marnes. Because a lot of what she's saying is based on the fact that George wasn't displaying those sort of emotions. And Holston sort of talks about, you know, we're all taught in the silo to look for those things so people get good at hiding them. So I took that for that wasn't anything specific to Juliet. I think what you're meant to understand by that is that the silo because it's an unnatural environment you know they have an issue with people not being able to deal with the environment so it's part of the education system in the silo so we get holston playing a game of good cop bad cop with juliet where the bad cop is the ever-looming threat of judicial but buddy holston he doesn't care if jules and georgie had a thing he's happy to pretend to have just happened upon any evidence she might have found so juliet <laughs> takes him to go see a pez dispenser <laughs> one of those yeah. 
dangerous relics of the past. <laughs> the scene that explains why Holston is the sheriff and Marnes is the deputy. Okay, well, how because, so? Because Marnes just sort of goes, where's your evidence? Right. My feet are sore. I can't yeah. believe you dragged me down 140 levels. Whereas Holston investigates. Holston is wondering why she dragged them down 140 levels. So right. it's not that Marnes isn't good at his job, but right. I think you see in that scene why Holston is the sheriff and Marnes is the deputy. And I also think in that scene you see why it wouldn't be a good idea to make Marnes the next sheriff. And Marnes knows this. You know, we can go back right. to that scene with him and the mayor that he'll break in the next sheriff, but he doesn't want to do it. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, the the Pez dispenser, it comes with a note that tells Juliet to remember where she saw it. And this is where things get weird for book readers, especially. So Juliet, she takes him down this hallway and she pulls aside a sign and there's a hole behind it. And she goes through to these extra deeper secret lower levels. Probably those levels we got a glimpse of in the blueprints that George and Allison were looking at last episode. And um Juliet, she takes Holston to see this machine, a giant digging machine in a pit. Juliet speculates that it's the machine that dug the silo. And when it was done, there wasn't an easy way to get it out. So the founders just capped it off in concrete and left it. And now she and George have been using it as their love nest and his illegal relic stash house, which is home to such wonders as an Eiffel Tower figurine, a badminton shuttlecock, a corroded seashell and a broken down camcorder. (laughs) Yeah, I just love that all the stuff that is invested with all this meaning is just yeah. a, it's just a random assortment of crap yeah. um, all corroded and, and stuff yeah that sort of holds my theory from last episode that like this was a sub-level to the silo where the rebels right. had been kind of buried so clearly that didn't happen so again that speaks to did why why do you say that didn't happen well maybe it did but that wasn't what was being shown on screen it was the digger Yeah, so it it goes back to making me wonder whether the rebellion even happened at all. And yeah, just I think that line about it made me realise just how little we know about the silo. Right. Yeah, no kidding. Well, yeah, because she even says this machine is more illegal than any relic, but I'm sure up top knows about it. And then Holston is very quick to assure her that he at least he's from up top, but he does not know (laughs) where they are or what this is. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I just I love the look on Holston's face because he's clearly like he's a guy who is used to knowing what what's going on right the whole purpose of his job is to know what's going on right he's completely bewildered and he doesn't like it and the yeah. other just really communicates that with a, just the way the way he's sort of looking around himself yeah maybe yeah when marnes asks him you know in when he's about to go outside and he asks him what changed with juliet i guess maybe this is the thing you know where he realizes that he doesn't know everything about the silo that there's there are actually quite big things about the silo that he doesn't know uh and that might shake his cause him to question everything especially Especially, you know, given what happened with Allison. Um, okay, so this machine, uh, as I said, it is from the books, but it's not when or how it's expected to encounter it. Uh, so in, in the books, encountering it is tied to pieces of plot that it's it's too soon to see play out. So uh, I'm honestly, yeah, it's throwing my brain for a loop a bit. And I'm wondering how this is going to move around and change the plot of the series in general. So, but actually, yeah, I I love that because it's definitely the same story, but they're throwing in some surprises even for book readers. But yeah, Jules, she notices that there's a wire spool that's been unspooled and she follows it to find a bag with da-da-da the hard drive and along with a a printout of Allison's illegal article with her handwriting on it. And yeah, this is how Juliet realizes that Holston actually knows George. Luke, why do you think Holston hid that he knows George, that he knew him? 
I think it's sort of the classic police thing of you always want to know more than the subject you're investigating. Right. And and at this point, Juliet is the person Holston is investigating. So I think it's that Holston Holston wants to be in a position of, of just knowing more than she at, right. at this point. And also, if you're Holston, you don't want to let her know that part of the story until you have the story from her point of view out in the open. You don't want it to influence Juliet's recollection of events. I think that's just Holston being good at his job and not wanting sort of his relationships and his perspective you know to contaminate Juliet's perspective yeah that makes sense yeah but then Juliet she's she's quite upset about it and she goes on to say the worst thing she could say she says maybe if you listen to your wife maybe she'd be alive right now Uh, yikes yikes but seems to work because Holston is now team George is maybe murdered and he says he'll look into it and send a signal and she'll quote know it when she sees it but then we find out that that was the last time she ever spoke to Holston and three months later he went out to clean so hence the temper tantrum where she called him a liar at the beginning of the episode Luke do you think Holston lied to Juliet or do you think he did send her a signal and if so what do you think the signal was oh I don't know at this point. Like, was the signal him cleaning? Is that, I don't know. Yeah, no, I don't. Not I think that's one of those things where it leaves it to audience interpretation, but we'll see. Maybe, maybe we will find out. Back in the present day, Juliet shows Walker a piece of the notes from George that she hadn't shown to Holston. Uh, this piece says, I found what I was looking for. And Walker tells her not to get killed, quote, down there. So obviously, yeah, that's where the episode's going to end. But first, we go back up top and we see Marnes has been given a pile of five candidates for the sheriff by the judge. And the judge has an obvious favorite, Paul Billings, uh, whom I'm assuming we'll meet next episode, played by Chinaza Uche. And like Peter Billings from the book, uh, his counterpart there, he works for judicial. But Billings also used to be a deputy in the mids in the show version. So it's interesting that he's quoted as having abandoned them for judicial. So that might create an extra tension in whatever dynamics going to enter the screen when when he's introduced. John's though, she isn't convinced that Billings is the guy to keep the mobs at bay. Luke, I know you haven't met Billings yet, but what are you expecting from this character based on this background? What kind of person on the Bernard de Juliet scale? Oh, closer to Bernard. I'm expecting. Yeah, okay. When we know from the interview with the actor that he's relatively young, I would expect somebody that's really ambitious. I'd expect I'd, I would expect somebody that is sort of kissing up to Sims quite heavily. So yeah, I, just the way he's sort of described by Marnes is sort of ambition with a brain and a digestive system. Yeah, okay. So yeah, so it's at this point that Marnes finally tells Johns that Holston left behind a note tapping Juliet as the next sheriff. So this is interesting because in the books, it's actually Marnes' idea that Juliet be the next sheriff because yeah, he did go down there and meet her while he and Holston were working a case. Uh, the show turns that case into the death of George, again, nicely tying the plot lines together a little more. But yeah, here Marnes seems extremely reluctant about Juliet. Yeah, I've got to say, it doesn't make sense to me as a non-book reader why Marnes would recommend Juliet. But from what you've seen of Juliet so far, do you think, what do you think makes a good sheriff in this world? And do you think that uh, she has those qualities? Um, I don't know whether she has those qualities. I don't think she's demonstrated them yet, 
because uh, I think Holston, they sort of set him up as the uh, the ideal sheriff, which is sort of strong commitment to duty and the law. He's a good investigator, so he notices Juliet's watch, which Mons doesn't. You know, as soon as Juliet starts speaking, Mons' first reaction is, is to dismiss her because she doesn't have what he would consider hard evidence, whereas Holston is more interested as why somebody would feel that strongly that they were murdered. If she was asking for a sheriff to come down 100 and some odd levels, she was doing it for a reason. Like I said, I don't know that Juliet doesn't have those characteristics, but I don't think they've been shown on screen yet. Okay, well, Johns is intrigued, and she wants to meet her, so she's going to make that political tour we talked about down to the basement, but that's next week's plot. This episode ends with Jules going back to the secret super deep down place and using the rope George used to search for whatever he was looking for to start searching herself. Uh, She climbs down the rope into the machine, and the episode ends with her hovering perilously over a pit of water. It's basically, it's like a mirror world version of a scene from later in the book, so I, like I said, I honestly have no idea what's going to happen next uh, luke what do you think is going to happen next i don't know what's going to happen next but i thought it was really interesting that's how it ended because there's a little bit earlier on um where you know jules talks about a fear of drowning but she's clearly like afraid of right. water so I, I think that setup again it's a throwaway line but it's it's really well used because it sets up just how how committed jules is to finding whatever this thing is yeah. that she would face what i took to be like a, something she's phobic about you know right. she's really afraid of No, it's good that you picked up on that because that was what someone was speculating online is that perhaps they uh, included this scene now to establish this fear, you know, because, yeah, you you notice that they casually mentioned her fear of water, but this is a way to make sure it's more noticeable to more casual viewers. It works as well just to underline Juliet's commitment to finding whatever this is that Right. Yeah, and the depth of her feelings for George as well, because I'm really glad that scene was there, because I think without it, you could have got the sense that her and George's relationship was um was was something more of a booty call than a right. than a serious yeah Romance, than a yeah. serious than a serious relationship, because like you said earlier on, she was sort of playing playing drab ass. Yeah. Uh, with George. So I, th- I think they did a really good job without laying it on, without emoting more than Juliet's character would. That she wasn't just sleeping with George, that George no. meant something to her. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's nice as a book reader to get to actually see this relationship because in the books, it's basically. It's just it's something you learn about later mentioned after the fact. But now we get to see the actual connection between them, which, yeah, it helps us understand Juliet more as a character. I think the different sides of her from just, you know, she's not just this hard mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. So do you, Luke, any other thoughts about the second episode? Um, I just I mean, I just like I hope we get more flashbacks with Alison and Holston. Yeah, I mind. I, I'd really like particularly Alison. I'd really like to know more about her. I just got the the feeling that, like, when she's interacting with George in that drive, I got the feeling that's not the first time she's handled relics. You know, I sort of got the sense that she's walked, she's maybe walked right up to the line of committing a serious crime on more than one occasion. And yeah. I also got the sense that maybe Holston is aware of that. Maybe it was something she did before they were in a relationship. But yeah. I got the sense of when he was using his sheriff's voice, it was also out of concern that we'd maybe been here before and it, it didn't end well. Maybe I'm reading way more into that than is actually there, but... I mean, yeah. I, I want to prepare listeners for the possibility that this might be the last we see of these two characters. 
But I would not mind at all if they did more flashbacks with them. I think that worked well with Holston in this episode, and I would love to see more of Rashida Jones as well. But I don't think anyone should hold their breaths. A- anything we get after this point is a nice bonus. Oh, don't. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, okay, that ends the second episode breakdown, but we've got some more final thoughts and of our own and also from other members of the community. So we'll be back with that feedback and final discussion after our final commercial break. Now opening the listener feedback channel. So we've got a healthy mailbag of feedback on these first two episodes from members of the community. Now, first up, we have John from the Lorehounds podcast. And anyone who loves these deep dive breakdowns should definitely be following them for coverage of everything from Tolkien and Star Wars to Ted Lasso and the White House plumbers. In the show notes, actually, you'll find a link to their Discord where you can geek out with other fans about all these shows. But there's also a dedicated silo channel there where you can chat with Luke and I. Uh, And we're looking forward to having John and David, too, as guests to talk about silo during the season as well in the future. So John's feedback for today, though, is with no book knowledge, he says, I think the mayor is a true believer. I don't know who created the silo or even if they're still in power, but I don't think she knows either. What do you think, Luke? Do you agree? Yeah, I I think that's fair. I'm assuming that whoever originally built the silo has probably passed on at this point because I don't know. We don't know how old the silo is, obviously, but I know it's at least 140 years. Yeah, we know we know it's at least 140 years. Hmm. So there would be a major amount of Palpatine's back energy for the people that built the silo to still be around. Okay, that's obviously something that's it's going to be a big part of who founded it and what happened to them and everything. So we got more feedback on the Lorehounds Discord server. We have uh, Davy Mack. He's read the books, but not recently. And he says, recently enjoyed these first two episodes. It's funny now that I'm seeing it play out on the screen. My memory is slowly coming back to me. Uh, I was trying to figure out where I recognized Harriet Walter from, the one Juliet tells the story to in the repair shop. She's been in loads of stuff, but where I last saw her in was Ted Lasso, Rebecca's mom. And yeah, of course, speaking as Alicia again, we've mentioned that she plays the Roy kid's mom on Succession too. So Rebecca Ferguson isn't the only uber busy woman on that set. Yeah, and I've got to say, actually, if if I didn't know that that was the case, I wouldn't have recognized her. Yeah, she's really a chameleon, I'd say. You know, she has the same face, but she manages to somehow look different in every role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. And then also from the Discord server, Rocky Zim has a very interesting theory. They asked, is this a human experiment? I assume there is poison in the suits so that they can't make it to the hill. I know they didn't take out the birth control device uh, aliens. So many things to consider. Also, when the sheriff went outside, he was seeing the greenery. I didn't see bodies, but I may have missed it. Uh, And also, is this a Truman Show thing? Like maybe they see a nice view outside and when they get out, uh, it could still be an illusion or something. I will stop now. My brain is all over the place. What do you think? Yeah, well, we we kind of talked about you like the aliens theory. I do. I like it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and so about the bodies, we, we did talk about that. It's a little clearer in the book uh, when Holston's cleaning is told from his own perspective that the wife's body was masked by the image that he was seeing in his helmet. Uh, but when he takes it off, he does see her there. And that's why in the show we saw him crawling toward, toward her. Now, I, I know there are people hoping we'll see more of a yellow owned Jones, and I hope so too. But yeah, like I said, would be flashbacks. And as Viama pointed out in Discord, we might be missing those too, but we do still have Ian Glenn to look forward to. <laughs> yeah, Jorah Mormont himself will be making an appearance. 
Probably next week. Rocky also added, I'm wondering if they will keep telling the story through different characters. Like, as each goes out to die, will they follow it with another one? I was thinking about the mythosaur when Julia dropped a light into the water. Lord, Lord, Lord. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, and what, there, do you, what do you think of the rest of this idea? Uh, the A different a cleaning of the week sort of thing. I don't know. I think that I, I hope they don't go down that route because I, I think that would get old rather quickly, to be honest. And from the, the reviews I've read, it doesn't look like that's the direction they're going to go in. Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, it, the cleanings are relatively rare, so it would, it's not like they're happening in quick succession in the current timeline, so it would have to involve some time jumping, which is possible. I, yeah. I honestly, I wouldn't mind it. So we also got some interesting feedback from our friend at Silo TV fans at Silo 17 Squad on Twitter. Now, first of all, it turned out, fun fact, they are actually uh, ordained, or whatever the proper term is, as a reverend. Oh, okay. Um, so in our response to our questions about the naming of Paul versus Peter Billings, he's Peter in the books, Paul in the TV show, uh, Chernaza Uche's character, that is. In response to that, they said, here's the thing with renaming Billings as Paul. In the Bible, Paul had a different name at first, too. He was Saul before his conversion. Uh, so interesting. I wonder if that plays into anything. Uh, uh. I, know one, I wonder if we'll see any more parallels as this character story unfolds. Silo TV fans also had more feedback about the first two episodes. They're a big fan overall. And yeah, we both basically vomited out our appreciation of the adaptation to each other. But then we got into the details and they said, the only thing that throws me a bit are the dimensions. It's so much more spacious. I know they mentioned it was for the sake of production, but to be honest, I find that a bit of a weak argument when the first season of Prison Break exists. Yeah, speaking as Alicia again, I think I actually like the spaciousness personally, but I can see why it doesn't vibe with the images and readers' heads. Yeah, and I'm not sure the, the analogy with the first series of Prison Break really works because the whole point of that show was to make, well, one of the points of that show was to make the audience feel claustrophobic. Mm. Uh, well, but I th I would argue that that's one of the goals here in the silo too. Okay. So in that case, yeah, that's an argument to their point, yeah. I just think Graham Yost and Morton Tilden are probably more interested in the politics and the, the murder mystery element of right. the show than... I'm not saying they're not interested in world building, because they clearly are, but what I'm saying is the the claustrophobia bit, I think they want the, the audience's attention on the characters and the storyline. Okay. I mean, I think that that's definitely intended to be there with this whole, like, just look at the advertising we talked about with, you know, getting locked in. But I, I think it's more of that shift in balance we talked about earlier between livability and yeah. yeah but okay so on the other hand a silo tv fan also said the second screen in mechanical is the change that makes the most sense to me for a society built on control how the fuck are you going to control a bunch of mechanical folks if you can't indoctrinate them howie's reasoning in the book seems to be that up top needed to exert less control because mechanical's location down deep but at the same time i always thought that they are too far out of reach so this, for me, was the perfect addition, adding a Hunger Games level to it. But that's not meant as a bad comparison, by the way. Yeah, we talked about the second screen, but do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, I, th I think it makes sense for the reasons we've already talked about. Yeah, um, I also just want to give a shout out to Silo TV fan because uh, they have just started their 10th round of chemo and it's rough going. So uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nonetheless, they're still out there on the front lines gathering Silo news. So we just want to say we appreciate you so much for who you are and what you do. Yeah, we hope all goes well. Uh, they do have a cool story about also about a blanket they made and how it ended up with one of the silo cast members. But that's sort of a tease because I'm hoping I can lure them on as a guest if treatment allows. I'll let them tell the story themselves. 
But yeah, we got a few more juicy nuggets from our friend Rebecca Ferguson fan too, at Rebecca fan at 14 on Twitter. Well, first of all, they confirmed your speculation that this show was filmed at Pinewood Studios, noting that Rebecca Ferguson had moved to a home near there. But I've since seen in several places that the large silo film set itself was in Hoddesdon. So I don't know if they also did additional filming at Pinewood. But in any case, like they were in the London area. Yeah. Okay. Now, after the show aired, Rebecca Ferguson fan shared the following. They said, here are my thoughts about the show. I kept it brief, hopefully, though I could talk about Rebecca and the show for hours. I came to Silo through Rebecca Ferguson and have been a fan of hers since 2015 when she starred in Mission Impossible Rogue Nation. So from the perspective of a Rebecca stan, I'm excited to see her return to television to tackle a character as complex as Juliet. From what I've seen and read, uh, this may rival her performance as Lady Jessica in Dune. As a sci-fi geek, I found the show incredibly compelling. Due to its world-building chops, I want to compare Silo to Soylent Green from 1973. Both set the stage Ooh. with a mystery. Yeah, both set the stage with a mystery engrossed with their own language, aesthetics, and culture. The first episode was fantastic and could have worked as a standalone piece with its world-building and emotional core. The second episode didn't have the same punch as it set up uh, the mystery, but there was still a lot to like. Silo is a win-win for me as a Rebecca Ferguson fan and a sci-fi geek, so I'm hooked and to stay. So yeah, two things immediately about that is um, uh, noting it, it could, could have worked as a standalone piece. It's it's interesting because it did start as a standalone short story. Um, and second, yeah, you reacted to the Soylent Green reference. I have yeah, to say, I, I am liking yeah. the Soylent Green reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a nice, it's a nice deep cut. Yeah, it's yes. one of my mom's favorite films growing up. So I have a soft spot for that like gritty nugget of classic dystopia. Awesome. So next up, uh, we have my good friend uh, Junaid Badar from Pakistan, uh, at Junaid Badar 20 on Twitter. And he says, I was reading some reviews and many have slightly negative thoughts about the pacing and how it requires patience. I think that's silly because I absolutely loved the pacing of the series, loved the character centric first two episodes. The show managed to encapsulate the relationship dynamics of both Allison and Holston and Juliet and George uh, in a single episode in a perfect way. And all the plot points perfectly aligned with each other. It was really intriguing and thrilling. Uh, Rashida Jones has delivered awards-worthy performance. Uh, Yellow Woe is great. And Rebecca is doing great as Juliet, too. It's just Rashida Jones really shined in this first episode. Her emotions, her performance, it was magnificent. And I love the score, too. One of the best of 2023 so far. Alicia speaking again for anyone who's a fan of the soundtrack, like I said, available uh, online. But Luke, I think you're on the same page with pretty much all that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and then we also have from Twitter, Shah Shahid, uh, at the Shah Shahid. Uh, he says, without having read the source material, so much of the premise is so relevant today. It feels Orwellian in nature. Being told a story, believing it, living your life by it, designed to keep the population subservient, obedient, and thought or idea contrary to it is silenced. But what's cool here is that there are, at least seemingly so far, no outward villains. Everyone seems to be acting in what they think is their and everyone else's best interests. Uh, I'm sure that will change, but it's gripping so far. As for the characters, to visually see the consequences of disobedience curtails the skepticism, which makes those doubting so much stronger, because your belief of the propaganda could literally result in death, which is exactly what happens, but just not as obviously. What do you think, Luke? Like I said earlier, I would push back on the no villains. Maybe as we find out more about Bernard, he'll be less villainous. But yeah, but yeah like it feels like I'm having a go at Tim Robbins. I'm not. But yeah, he just he does for the moment feel like the least well fleshed out character, put it that way. And I get that he hasn't had a lot of screen time, but Common didn't have a lot of screen time. 
either, and I got a better sense of who Sims was than who Bernard was. I mean, common, you know, Sims, he was literally called Judicial Thug, and we only saw him, like, walking up yeah, looking intimidating. Yeah. yeah, So, But, like, the way he did that, it's like, it's an actor playing an actor, it's common playing Sims playing mm-hmm. a thug, if that makes right. sense. Like, Sims is playing the part of being a thug, whereas I think Bernard just came across as oily and unpleasant yeah. from the get-go. Okay, fair. Um, okay, so our, our last piece of feedback comes from Reddit user White Paper Bag. Uh, so we were discussing the changes in the second episode. White Paper Bag is also a book reader. And cutting out any spoilers, this is what they said. Uh, they said, so this episode is definitely where they're taking liberties and none I find particularly bad. Just really curious how they're going to reroute some storylines away from the book and bring them back around to the conclusion. And about the first episode, they agree with Junaid. Uh, they said Rashida Jones portrayal was the highlight of the episode by far and brought the first part of the Wool novel to incredible life. So basically, White Paper Bag and I are on the same page, except that I think Yellow O is getting not enough recognition in these comments. So I just need to give him another shot. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think we, I don't think we can give David Oyelowo or Rashida Jones enough praise in this episode. Yeah. Okay, so that wraps up our feedback. What about you, Luke? Do you have any final thoughts before we go? No, except you know, Holston. I'm, I'm sorry, dude. I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> come back. I know, I know. Holston, come back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. But I'm looking forward to because now we there are a few characters we've talked about, like Paul Billings and, and uh, Dr. Nichols. And, you know, these are characters who we haven't even met yet because, you know, we've been as we should have been. We've been paying attention to this Holston and Allison storyline, which told us so much about the stakes of this world. But now we get to spend more time with characters we'll see throughout the some throughout the rest of the season. <laughs> Not all. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to say if Ian Glenn comes on next episode with a tragic backstory that makes me well up like I, I need a break silo I need a I need a, I can't deal with that level of feels every week I mean, I do think, I don't know, let's see. I do think that this is, we'll see. But I think, like, you know, with The Last of Us, every episode was, like, one-upping itself in heartbreak. And I don't think that this is, I think the Holston Allison thing is one of the biggest heartbreaks, but I'm not going to lie and say it's the last. Yeah, yeah well, that, that's fine. Because, I mean, yeah. this isn't The Last of Us podcast, but I did, I did sort of yeah. feel getting towards the end of The Last of Us that, that it kind of, it had gone too far. It tried to top itself once, mm. once many times so i'm glad that if there are more moments like that that they're spread out through the series it's not constantly at that pitch right because because that that would that would that would be genuinely exhausting Um, uh i guess we'll find out next week but in the meantime luke where can people find you so I am at Luke Middup on Twitter. You can also follow me on um, our Discord. Scouts Honor, I'm going to get better at responding on the Discord. So <laughs> yeah. sorry I haven't been there much so far. <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm quite active there. But also, Luke, you do some podcasting about sports and politics. Where can people find yeah, out more I about do. that? So that podcast is It Could Be Said, or one word. It's myself. Will Cooling and Simon Alvey and yeah we talk about British politics we talk about international politics we talk about sport and basically anything else that's on our collective minds so okay yeah it could be said all one word 
And if you're interested in hearing more of my thoughts and voice, then you can find me on Twitter at Alicia CB, which you'll find spelled out in the show notes as well. Plus, you'll find me popping up on episodes of the Lore Hounds and other geek culture podcasts. And uh, yeah, you'll find both of us back here right in this feed next week. So subscribe to make sure you get the notification. Uh, Next episode from us will be out next Monday, the 15th. We'll be talking about episode three of Silo titled Machines, where we're promised a confrontation between Mayor Johns and Bernard and an emergency in Mechanical. Now, if after the release on Friday, if you have any thoughts about episode three of Silo you want to share, please find my pinned tweet on Twitter, which I'll throw up when the episode goes live on Apple, or reach out on the Lorehounds Discord next weekend uh, before Sunday if you want your thoughts included in this feedback section. And if you enjoyed this episode, you know the drill. A five-star rating wherever you're listening is the biggest help you can give us to reach more people. We can't wait to talk to you again next week. Until then, we're going to have to leave you hanging like your Juliet on a solo mission in the Diggers' <laughs> Bye. Bye.